Welcome to the war from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, uh, box13 at uh, greatdetectives.net. Well, today's episode of the war is going to be a little bit uh, different. I'm not going to have a ton of commentary. Uh, America Looks Abroad did three great episodes uh, summarizing the situation on the ground in Germany, in England, and also uh, looking at prospects for what the future might hold in 1941. And really, as a snapshot of the way things stood at the end of 1940, it's quite self-explanatory. So we're going to go ahead and play those three episodes without any commentary interruptions. So here now are the three episodes from December 15th, December 22nd, and December 29th of 1940. America Looks Abroad. This is the 55th in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association, a nonpartisan organization which offers accurate information on world affairs. Today's subject is Inside Germany. The speaker is Mr. John C. DeWilde, Foreign Policy Association expert who follows international events in Germany. Mr. DeWilde. Last Tuesday, on the eve of another winter of warfare and privation, the German Führer gave a pep talk. With this characteristic flair for drama, Hitler chose as a setting the shiny steel guns of a great munitions plant. And he addressed his remarks, above all, to the millions of workers who are laboring long hours in the armament factories throughout Greater Germany. Three things stood out in his speech. The first was the great emphasis laid on the Nazi thesis that the war is essentially a struggle between rich and poor, with Germany espousing the cause of the expropriated against the capitalistic democracies. Hitler depicted himself as the representative of the have-nots, the champion of the laboring masses in a titanic fight to break the power of gold and capitalism. Eighty-five million Germans, he said, have 600,000 square miles at their disposal, while 46 million English have 40 million square kilometers. To the eradication of this alleged uneven distribution of living space, he pledged himself. Secondly, there was the confident reaffirmation of his belief in a final German victory. In strident tones, he cried out, There will be no defeat in Germany either military or economic, on the grounds of time. In our lexicon, there's no such word as capitulation. Finally, there were the hopes held out for the future. When this war is over, Hitler promised, the great work of creation is to begin in Germany. My ambition is to make the German people rich and the German land beautiful. We can imagine that at this point, the Führer's voice became less harsh and more persuasive. We want a state, he said, in which birth matters nothing and achievement means everything. Our ideal is that every position in the country shall be filled by a true son of the people. In reviewing this speech, one wonders why Hitler chose this time to make it. Are the German people beginning to lose confidence despite the victories won by the German army and air force? Is the prospect of a long war terrifying to many Germans who remember the outcome of the last one? Are supplies of foodstuffs and raw materials running dangerously short? Few people can pretend to answer these questions accurately, 
Dr. Goebbels and Heinrich Himmler, the chief of the all-pervasive German secret police, may take informal polls of public opinion now and then, but if so, they are not publishing the results to the world. Yet, we can perhaps assemble a few facts which may permit some tentative deductions. Let us take the question of supplies. Germany does not appear to be suffering from any critical shortage of raw materials. When she entered the war, the iron ore supply threatened to be a serious bottleneck in the German war economy. Now, French Lorraine, which has been annexed by the Reich, can fully supply the deficiency. In Sharp's contrast, Britain has now been almost completely cut off from the European supplies of ore on which her iron and steel industry depended to a large extent. At one time, there was also a danger that Germany might not have enough raw material to make the aluminum needed for the thousands of bombers. France, again, is making up this deficiency, while Britain must rely on far-off Canada for most of her aluminum. There is undoubtedly a relative shortage of many non-ferrous metals like copper, and of such ferro-alloys as nickel, chromium, manganese, and tungsten. Yet the Nazis laid in sizable reserves before the war, and have rationed the consumption of all these minerals most carefully. But what about oil, you will ask? Here it is more difficult to give an opinion. Germany herself produces about a million tons of natural crude oil, and probably a couple million tons of synthetic gasoline. The Soviet Union may furnish almost a million tons yearly, although we have no reliable figures on this point. A few months ago, the Russians and Germans completed the construction of freight yards and pumping facilities on the Russo-German border, which makes possible the rapid and efficient transfer of oil from Russian to German tank cars. In addition, the Axis powers now monopolize the six million ton output of Romania. With these sources of supply, while these sources of supply seem more than ample, Lack of adequate transportation facilities probably limits Germany's ability to draw on Russia and Romania. Moreover, we don't know to what extent German refineries and synthetic gasoline plants have been affected by British air attacks. British bombers have repeatedly concentrated on these targets and must have done some damage. But it would probably be safe to conclude that Germany still has enough oil to carry on the, oil war the air warfare against Britain. Not much is needed for this purpose. The conquer territories have certainly made substantial contributions, some temporary, some more or less permanent, to Germany's industrial resources. A German economic weekly, which has recently come into my hands, frankly admits that Germany's conduct in these countries is guided only by the iron rule that everything is justified which ensures a final victory. This publication takes great pride in the efficiency with which the economic section of the army staff follows up every conquest. A diligent search is made for stocks of raw materials and finished goods, and wherever they are found, a sign requisitioned by the German high command immediately goes up. There is also an immediate inventory of all industrial facilities to uncover anything that might be useful in overcoming any bottlenecks in Germany. In some cases, machinery is simply dismounted and transported to the Reich. Thus, in the Paris area, as this German periodical proudly admits, some 2,000 machines were carted away. In other cases, where it is more advisable to utilize labor and supplies on the spot, 
the factories get subcontracts for the German army, which they have to carry out under German commissars. The conquered territories also constitute a labor reservoir for Germany. More than a million prisoners of war are at work in German factories and on farms. Thousands of unemployed Frenchmen, Hollanders, Belgians and Norwegians have been persuaded, as the Nazis put it, to take jobs in Germany. They afford considerable help to a country which suffers from an acute shortage of manpower. In financing the war, the Nazi government is apparently meeting with no serious difficulties. Most people express amazement that Germany can find the necessary funds. Just this week, one of our listeners has written in, wondering how it is possible for a country which is supposed to be so poor to finance a war. Paradoxically enough, Germany has been able to pay for the war primarily because she is so poor, that is, poor in goods which people can buy. The German people, who are working hard and long hours, are actually earning more money than before the war. But they can only spend a small portion of it, because most of the goods produced are for war, thus leaving a relatively small part for civilian consumption. And what people can't spend, the government absorbs, either in the form of loans or taxes. While all this evidence testifies to Germany's material ability to continue the war, it indicates little or nothing about civilian morale. That is determined much more by the effectiveness of Britain's air warfare, by the adequacy of food and clothing, and by the hope, if any, of a German victory in the not-too-distant future. Up to the present, the air raids on Germany have by no means attained the intensity and scope of those on Britain. In some sections of northern Germany, notably in Hamburg, Bremen, and Kiel, and in the industrial Rhineland, bombing raids have been frequent enough to compel people to spend almost every night huddled in air raid shelters. But for the majority of the German people, such raids are probably still something of a novelty. And there are certainly no towns like Coventry, Southampton, and Birmingham which have been subjected to wholesale destruction. The testimony of neutral observers indicates, however, that civilian morale isn't entirely satisfactory. There's widespread gloom and apathy. No doubt, the Germans have been keenly disappointed that the victory, which seemed within their grasp last June and July, has still not been realized. They do not relish the prospect of another winter of warfare on short rations. True, the clothing allowance this year is slightly better than last in part because the wardrobe of many Germans undoubtedly needs to be replaced, and in part because some Soviet cotton has become available, and stocks of other textile raw materials have been seized in the conquered countries. The government has repeatedly assured the people that there will be enough coal on hand, so that they will not have to shiver through this winter as they did last year. Even so, the supply will hardly permit German families to keep more than one room heated. So far, the government has avoided cutting the food rations, probably in the conviction that the German diet is already sufficiently restricted and monotonous. While bread, flour, and potatoes are plentiful, vegetables and fruit are very hard to get. This summer, there was a very good supply of vegetables, but a shortage of tin prevented much canning. The fruit crop, on the whole, was a failure 
the way in which passers-by in Berlin recently pounced on the contents of an upset apple cart shows how apples are coveted by, the, by Germans in these days. The present meat ration can probably be maintained, but German housewives are much more concerned about the supply of butter and other fats. The shortage of fodder has decreased milk yields, and the German government will probably have to dip into its reserves of fats. In the current Christmas season, the German housewife is finding shopping more difficult than ever, whether for food or for presents, and this is a cheerless prospect indeed for a nation which has always attached great value to the proper celebration of Christmas. Hitler's speech, to which I alluded at the beginning, was probably designed to encourage the people to bear their sacrifices still longer. It was one of many efforts recently made to bolster morale. Most of these have been made to keep the people popular, keep the regime popular with the working classes on whom the war effort so largely depends. Premiums for overtime work, for example, were restored this fall, and the administration of the war income tax was recently adjusted so as to lessen the burden on those with small incomes. Additional food was also assigned to the kitchens of those factories in which employees were working long hours on the manufacture of munitions. Above all, the German, the German government has focused rose-colored glasses on the social and economic conditions that are to prevail after the war. Numerous articles in newspapers and periodicals have set forth plans for the economic reorganization of Europe, which would inaugurate a new era of peace and plenty for all. Dr. Lai, who marshals the Nazi labor front, has painted a post-war picture in which any German father would pack his wife and three or four children into a people's car and travel all over the continent in the search of pleasure and culture. All this, Hitler has proclaimed, is part of the Nazi aim to create a model socialist state and ensure full employment after the war. The available evidence does not permit very definite conclusions. There appears to be no likelihood that Germany will break down internally for material or for moral reasons, at least as long as there is even a small hope of victory. There are perhaps only two ways in which Germany can be defeated. On the one hand, by greatly intensified air raids on such a scale as to demoralize the German populace. On the other, a persuasive and astute campaign designed to convince the German people that the post-war settlement will be constructive rather than vindictive. Mr. John C. DeWilder, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association, was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you'd like a free copy of this talk, address your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York, or in care of the station to which you are listening. We'll repeat the address, the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York, or in care of the station to which you are listening. The Foreign Policy Association is a nonpartisan organization open to all who are interested in American foreign policy. It offers accurate information on current world happenings. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. This program originated in the studios of WFIL, and this is the National Broadcasting Company. America Looks Abroad. This is the 56th in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association 
a nonpartisan organization which offers accurate information on world affairs. Today's subject is Inside England. The speaker is Mr. James Frederick Green, foreign policy association expert who follows international events in Great Britain. Mr. Green. Good afternoon. Yesterday, an official spokesman of the German Foreign Office condemned the foreign policy of the United States as one of pinpricks, injury, challenge, and moral aggression. And he warned that the recent appeal of the British Minister of Shipping, who asked us to seize the many foreign ships lying idle in our harbors, was inciting America to commit a warlike act. Whatever this very strong statement means with regard to German-American relations, it throws light on Great Britain's position in the war. Germany realizes that Britain can survive only if she has ships to bring food and raw materials to the British Isles, and that only America can provide those ships and war materials to help Britain survive. The British realize this somber fact, too, and only three days ago Winston Churchill warned them that it would be a disaster to suppose that the supreme danger is past. Therefore, the next three or four months may, be, may well be the decisive ones of the war and may place Britain in a precarious situation unless American aid, about which Germany has protested, is forthcoming. On the credit side of Britain's ledger are the une unexpected events in the Mediterranean, where British sea, land, and air forces have scored heavily in North Africa and Albania. For the first time since the war began, somebody has put a large question mark on the claims of the Axis powers to be invincible. Also on the credit side of the ledger, Britain is far better prepared to resist invasion than it was last summer. But the threat of invasion has not disappeared with the coming of the winter weather. In his speech last Thursday, Mr. Churchill said, the watchword must be unceasing vigilance. So much for the favorable aspects of Britain's position. And there can be no doubt that in many ways Britain has made extraordinary progress since the fall of France last June. But on the debit side of the ledger, certain unfavorable factors loom very large. They have to do with airplanes, ships, and industrial production, and the effect of these three items on civilian morale. The airplane problem can be stated very simply. Britain had enough fighter planes, pilots, and anti-aircraft guns last September to stop mass bombing attacks by daylight, and thus to save London from disaster. Britain therefore fulfilled the first task of aerial defense, but it has not yet been able to solve the second problem, the night bomber, nor have the British been able to launch a really large-scale air offensive against the Axis powers. The RAF has undoubtedly done severe damage to Germany and Italy, but Germany, now that it controls most of Europe, is far less vulnerable to air attack than the compact little British target across the Channel. Not until Britain gains superiority over Germany in planes and plane production, especially bombers, can it hope for victory. According to some estimates, Britain's airplane production reached a record peak last August, probably more than 2,000 planes monthly, but then fell off to an average of about 1,700 planes from September through November. Even with imports of American planes added in, this total is still probably well below German production at the present time. Now, the problem of shipping is equally important for Britain. Over four million tons of shipping, British, allied, and neutral, have been sunk so far, and the rate of losses has been increasing in the past few months. In the last two weeks for which we have figures, the two weeks ending December 8th, 
over 180,000 tons of world shipping has been sunk. If Germany could keep up that rate through 1941, it would sink over four and a half million tons of shipping. Britain can't possibly build ships fast enough to meet its own losses, and many of the other important shipbuilding countries are now under German control. That's why the British welcomed the 50 destroyers we traded them last September, and why they are now buying up every ship they can find in this country, and are planning to build 60 new freighters here. Without imports, Britain cannot feed either its citizens or its machines. Already serious shortages of foodstuffs are developing in Britain, although large surpluses exist in North America and elsewhere, simply because Britain must conserve its shipping for transport of raw materials to its factories, and perhaps of supplies to its troops in the Mediterranean. The third factor, industrial production, is also of vital significance in Britain's military plans, and of course it depends to a large extent upon the airplane and shipping factors I've just mentioned. All the really interesting figures regarding industrial production are among the most carefully guarded secrets of the various belligerent countries. We can only guess at the damage done to the British economy by Germany's airplanes and submarines. Until the end of September, the Germans seemed to concentrate their bombing attacks pretty largely upon London, and they unquestionably damaged the many industries and communications in and around that enormous city. It was only in October and November that the German bombers went systematically after the great heavy industries in the Midlands at Coventry, Birmingham, and Sheffield. About the only official clue we have as to the results appeared in a recent speech by Mr. Arthur Greenwood, a member of the War Cabinet. Mr. Greenwood stated flatly that all of these air raids had not weakened the essential framework of British industry, but he admitted that they had slowed up what he called the expanding progress of recent months. And Mr. Greenwood went on to say something much more significant, that it would take another two years before Britain could reach the peak of its armament production, and even then, only with the help of the United States. This brings us to the question of civilian morale. What Mr. DeWilde said on this program last Sunday about the German people applies just as forcefully to the British people, that a nation can fight on, even for years, so long as it believes in its own cause and has confidence in an ultimate victory. The British people have certainly exhibited both that belief and that confidence in the last six months. Only a few weeks ago, the British Parliament voted against any consideration of peace by 341 to 4. But the British people realize that victory depends upon airplanes, ships, and hundreds of other implements of war. And they realize, with grave anxiety, that they can gain supremacy in these weapons only with American assistance. Lord Lothian stated this fact very frankly in the last speech before his death, and he warned the United States that the final showdown might come within the next few months. But the question of American aid, and whether it will come in time to turn the tide, is not only the only issue influencing British morale. The incessant air raids have obviously done appalling damage to civilian life in many parts of England. In the large cities, especially London, hordes of people have to spend every night underground and to face indescribable discomforts and the growing menace of disease. Thousands of Britishers have lost their homes and all their property and have been uprooted from their families and familiar surroundings. Under the circumstances, it's remarkable that civilian morale has not been broken by the despair and resentment that must follow the nightly devastation. 
but through Parliament and the press, even in wartime, the British public can criticize and condemn the shortcomings of its officials and demand immediate action. Recently, there have been hints of an increase in public resentment over the inadequate shelter facilities in London and the inadequate housing and feeding preparations for air raid victims. The labor leaders in the cabinet, Ernest Bevan and Herbert Morrison, have been going out of their way to attack the Communist Party. They accuse the Communists of fomenting trouble in the air raid shelters and of promoting strikes in the factories. Apparently, the Communists are taking advantage of unsatisfactory conditions wherever they find them, and apparently they are finding many such conditions to exploit. Several other questions that affect British morale deserve watching this winter. Winston Churchill has won tremendous popularity as a dynamic, imaginative leader, and his coalition has worked miracles since the dark days of Norway last spring. But the cabinet is still a coalition, a coalition of conservatives, liberals, and laborites, all of whom are patriotically determined to fight the war, but all of whom quite naturally disagree over some of the ways and means of fighting it. They disagree, for example, over taxation and financial policy, over social legislation, and over foreign policy. For example, the business interests in England oppose the excess profits tax of 100% that was enacted last spring. The Labour Party, on the other hand, is not satisfied with the sales tax, which, which went into effect in October, and some of its members advocate a tax on capital wealth. The government has guaranteed a certain income for the railways, so other industries want similar privileges. The government has not yet solved the familiar problem of inflation, with both prices and wages rising in the so-called vicious circle. Food prices in England, for example, have risen 25% since the outbreak of war, and clothing prices have risen even more. While many consumers have received higher wages, especially in the arms factories, many others have been severely hit by the rise in the cost of living. Moreover, many liberals and labor leaders argue that this war, like the last one, should be used to promote social legislation, and they are seeking to reform England's school system to help the poorer classes. Yesterday, for example, the heads of the three great churches in England, the Church of England, the Roman Catholic and the Nonconformist faiths, issued a joint statement of war aims, urging that extreme inequality of wealth should be abolished, and that every child should have equal opportunity for education and so forth. The liberals maintain that in health, security, and general well-being of the masses is as important as planes and battleships. Just last summer, in fact, Parliament passed legislation to provide one pint of free milk to every poor child under five in England. But many conservatives, on the other hand, fear that Britain is, is rapidly getting socialism without any benefit of an election, and that in wartime a nation must curtail every activity except its war effort which in Britain today is now taking one half of the national income. The larger issues of foreign policy also enter into the picture, while the conservatives and the laborites in the government probably have rather different ideas on such matters as war aims, relations with the Soviet Union and with Franco-Spain, and the question of self-government for India. At least many labor leaders outside the government certainly are quite critical of the foreign policy of Lord Halifax, the new ambassador to the United States, and they demand that Britain go much further in stating its war aims. 
You will find the best statement of this case in Harold J. Lasky's new book, Where Do We Go From Here? The British Labour Party has officially advocated a federation of Europe, and its most powerful leader in the government, Mr. Ernest Bevin, is strongly in favour of its program for pooling all colonies under an international administration. Now, Prime Minister, Minister Churchill, so far, has maintained that he must concentrate on fighting the war, but he is reported to be preparing a statement of war aims to be delivered next week. All of these many factors play a part in Britain's war effort. From this side of the Atlantic, it is hard to estimate their relative importance from week to week. We can only surmise that the most critical days of the war lie just ahead for Britain, and that the balance of forces between the two great contestants is now very close. Since Britain cannot draw fully upon the vast resources of the British Empire and the United States for another year or more, it may face its real test of strength during the next few months. Dr. James Frederick Green, or rather Mr. Frederick Green, research associate of the Foreign Policy Association, was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you would like a free copy of this talk, address your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York, or in care of the station to which you are listening. That address is 22 East 38th Street, New York. The Foreign Policy Association is a nonpartisan organization open to all who are interested in American foreign policy. It offers accurate information on current world happenings. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. Today's speaker was Mr. James Frederick Green, Research Associate of the Foreign Policy Association. This is the National Broadcasting Company. America Looks Abroad. This is the 57th in a series of broadcasts presented by the staff members of the Foreign Policy Association, a nonpartisan organization which offers accurate information on world affairs. Today's subject is War and Peace Prospects for 1941. The speaker is Mrs. Vera Michelis Dean, Director of the Research Department of the Foreign Policy Association. Mrs. Dean. Thank you. Here in the United States, where we seem far from the battlefields of Europe and Asia, the holiday season is darkened by anxiety about the coming year. How much darker are these days for the peoples of Europe, who in a short span of one year have lived through one of the most far-reaching upheavals known to history? Britain, locked in a grim struggle with Germany, is striving to prevent invasion from air and sea. At the same time, Britain is making every effort to maintain communications with overseas countries on which it depends in increasing measure for supplies of airplanes and armaments. Germany controls virtually the entire European continent. But as long as Britain resists, Europe remains isolated, cut off from overseas countries by the British blockade. Germany must therefore seek to deliver a mortal blow at the British Isles within the next few weeks or months before American aid to Britain has assumed substantial proportions. Italy, after suffering serious reverses in Albania and Africa, finds itself increasingly dependent on Germany. The Nazis may now stage a drive into the Balkans, both to relieve pressure on Italy and to divert British attention from the major theatre of war in the West, 
Such a drive, in turn, may bring Germany into conflict with Russia, which until now has been hostile to both Britain and Germany, but is alarmed by the eastward expansion of the Nazis. Meanwhile, most Americans still hope that the United States can stay out of the wars that are ravaging other continents. Our people, however, are divided as to the best method of avoiding involvement in war. Some believe that our best insurance against war is to give Britain all the aid at our command, so that the British can defeat Germany without military intervention on our part. Others fear that additional aid to Britain will precipitate an open clash between the United States and Germany. They fear that even should Britain win, the British would make a peace like that of Versailles, starting again the vicious circle of wars in Europe. They argue that war would destroy democratic institutions in this country, as well as Britain. Some of them consequently urge a negotiated peace between Britain and Germany before it is too late. In the midst of so much confusion and uncertainty, no one dare be so bold as to predict the outcome of the profound upheavals which are transforming the face of the world. One thing is clear. Whatever may be our views on the international situation, whether we are pacifists or isolationists or what are known as interventionists, we show by the very heat of our discussions that we are not indifferent to Europe's fate. Why is that? Why have we failed to achieve the kind of mental and emotional detachment that would make it possible for us to adopt a policy of isolation? Because we realize that for better or worse, the United States is part of that Western civilization that is being challenged by Nazism. Even if we should feel no concern for Europe's political and economic future, we are concerned with what is happening there in that deeper sense so well expressed by John Donne when he said many years ago, any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That is why it is so important for us to understand Europe's experience. Some Americans believe that there is no need to worry about the outcome of the war in Europe because this country is not in danger of a military invasion. It is true that the United States is in no danger of immediate military invasion by Germany, even if Britain should be defeated tomorrow. But it would be a perilous illusion to believe that because this country is not threatened with invasion, it is therefore secure against the effects of the European conflict. As France and other continental countries discovered, disintegration from within can be far more dangerous than attack from without. Germany's so-called secret weapon is not a military weapon, it is the weapon of propaganda which divides a country from within, corrodes public opinion, sets parties and groups against each other, and finally achieves that internal breakdown of authority which paves the way for actual military occupation. This weapon of propaganda has been rightly described as secret because no country appears to be aware of it until it has been conquered by Germany. For what is the secret of Hitler's striking victories on the European continent? Some people believe his victories were due to Germany's extraordinary military machine. And it is true that Germany has an extraordinary military machine backed by an extraordinary economic machine. Others believe that Hitler's victories were due to the activities of fifth columns. And it is true that fifth columns aided the Nazis from within in every invaded country. But why has Britain succeeded so far where France and others failed? Of course, the English Channel remains a strong defense against German invasion, even though its value has been diminished by the development of air and submarine warfare. 
But the secret of British resistance is neither superior armaments nor superior methods of dealing with fifth columns. The secret of British resistance is civilian courage. It is a courage springing from the belief of ordinary men and women, untrained for war and hating war, that their community, their institutions, their way of life are worth defending, and a voluntary determination of these men and women to make whatever sacrifice may prove necessary in terms of lives and material comforts and possessions. I stress the words civilian courage and voluntary determination to sacrifice because I believe that they provide a clue to the kind of a new order which the democratic peoples can offer as a valid alternative to the new order proposed by the Nazis. For without civilian courage, democratic society tends to disintegrate into anarchy. Out of the bitter experience of the past year, we are learning that democratic rights and freedoms are not automatically perpetuated. They must constantly be defended against encroachments by various groups and special interests. We are learning that democracy need not be synonymous with political agnosticism. On the contrary, democracy can thrive only if it is a living faith, which while tolerating other political faith, is ready to defend itself by force if necessary. But while democracy cannot exist without civilian courage, neither can it exist without a spirit of sacrifice on the part of all groups of the population. As long as the peoples of Western countries fear to sacrifice lives and material possessions to defend themselves, the Nazis were bound to succeed, for the Nazis shrank from no sacrifices. Nazi propaganda could also argue that the democracies, while professing high ideals of international morality, were actually not ready either to fight in defense of their ideals or to fulfill them by surrendering some of their economic privileges. Again, out of the bitter experience of the past year, we are beginning to realize that peace, like freedom, cannot be automatically perpetuated. Today, the British are making sacrifices for war that they would never have dreamt of making for peace. Today, they are thinking in terms of international planning and international controls for their wartime needs, where yesterday, they, like ourselves, thought largely in terms of their own interests. It can only be hoped that some of the lessons people all over the world are now learning in time of war may be remembered when the time comes to build for peace. You might ask, well, under these circumstances, is there any basis for a negotiated peace? Is it not possible to shorten the war, to spare lives and economic resources, to prevent extension of the conflict before Britain and Germany have destroyed each other? This is obviously a tempting thought. If the struggle between Britain and Germany is to develop into a long-drawn stalemate, or if Germany is bound to win the final victory, would it not be better to end the war now and salvage what one can in Europe? As you know, a number of leading Americans, among them Senators Tidings and Wheeler, are urging our government to explore the possibilities of a negotiated peace. And Senator Wheeler has stated that in his opinion, a basis might be found for a just peace in Europe. Now, what are the obstacles to a negotiated peace? The first and most important is that the British do not trust Hitler. They feel that a peace negotiated with Hitler would be another and far more disastrous Munich, an uneasy truce which would give Germany leisure to prepare 
for a final blow against what is left of the Western world. You must also remember that in case such a truce were signed today, it would be practically impossible for the British to resume the conflict should Germany attack them again. Another important obstacle to negotiated settlement from the British point of view is that a peace negotiated today between Britain and Germany would be equivalent to a German victory. For at a peace conference held today, Germany, with its army and most of its industry intact, would insist on retaining its hegemony of Europe. It would demand a substantial share of Africa. It would insist on surrender of at least part of the British fleet. It would insist on free access by a German-controlled Europe to the foodstuffs and raw materials of Latin America. It would demand surrender of the French fleet and French colonies. The most the British could expect would be to keep the British Isles and to retain nominal control of those parts of the empire that lie outside Africa. Still another important obstacle to negotiated peace is that it would leave the conquered peoples of Europe to such fate as may be reserved for them by Germany. The British believe that to abandon these people now would not only be a repudiation of their pledge to liberate the peoples of Europe, but would not provide a basis for the just peace contemplated by men like Senator Wheeler. For these and many other reasons, the British are not ready to consider a negotiated peace, which they would regard as total defeat. Nor must we indulge in the belief that a negotiated peace would affect Britain alone. For if such a peace confirms German hegemony in Europe and a large part of Africa, the position of the United States is bound to be affected by this change in the balance of power. Germany already controls the principal shipbuilding facilities of Europe. It would then have direct access to the Atlantic, where, no longer confronted by the British fleet, it could challenge our sea power, while Japan challenges us in the Pacific. The United States might be in no immediate danger of invasion, but it would be confronted with the most formidable industrial competitor it has ever faced, and would be caught in a pincer-like movement between the combined threats of Germany and Japan. Under such circumstances, the United States would have no choice but to accept Axis-imposed isolation. And you must remember that isolation would not necessarily protect us against German penetration in the Western Hemisphere. What is the alternative to a negotiated peace of this character? The alternative, as the British see it, is complete and total defeat of Hitler and the substitution in Germany of a regime possibly controlled by the army, which would be in a position to negotiate a peace Britain could trust. But, you may ask, can the British achieve a complete and total defeat of Hitler? The answer, so far as can be determined, is that the British cannot achieve a decisive victory over Hitler unless they receive a much larger measure of aid from the United States aid that might eventually involve military intervention by this country. Now, in the opinion of some Americans, involvement of this country in war is far more dangerous than the most disastrous negotiated peace. And we must, in all honesty to ourselves and to Europe, realize that it will not be enough for the British, with our aid, to win the war. We would also have to help the British win the peace. Are we prepared to undertake the heavy responsibility not only of giving further aid to Britain, even at the risk of war with Germany, but also, when war is over, of collaborating with Britain in the construction of a new order? In considering this question, we must realize that the United States is a great power 
and power cannot be divorced from responsibility. Even if all we do is urge Britain to accept a negotiated peace, would be would be undertaking a grave responsibility, and to that extent would be intervening again in the European conflict. No course that lies before us is free from risk. This we must remember as we await the president's speech tonight and the decision of Congress in the new year. Mrs. Vera Michelis Dean. Director of the Research Department of the Foreign Policy Association was today's speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. If you would like a free copy of this talk, address your request to the Foreign Policy Association, 22 East 38th Street, New York, or in care of the station to which you are listening. The Foreign Policy Association is a nonpartisan organization open to all who are interested in American foreign policy. It offers accurate information on current world happenings. In the world of today, foreign affairs are your affairs. We invite you to tune in next Sunday to hear another speaker in the America Looks Abroad series. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome back. Well, a very thought-provoking and uh, complete summary of where things stood at the end of 1940. 1941 would be a year of continued preparations. It would also be a year where some fictional radio stories began to take on the Nazis. It was not an easy task at all, with uh, network censorship rules being what they were. But some writers found a way around it. So even if America wasn't going to fight the Axis, you can bet their characters were. And the most prominent character tussle with the Nazis over radio surprise you. Be sure and listen tomorrow as we continue on with the war. If you would like to share your experience or that of a loved one during World War II, please email your stories to box13 at greatdetectives.net. We will consider all stories to be shared on the air. We also welcome your suggestion as to future programs. This program is dedicated to those who fought and died in World War II and is presented as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net. The opening theme is The Heroic by Ken Curlin, kenkurlin.com.